guys, it's Melissa. Since we're an independent podcast, your support means the absolute world, whether that's on social media, in a podcast review, or a word of mouth recommendation. If you've been enjoying this podcast and would like to take it a step further, I now have a support feature where you can contribute a one-time donation at whichever price you'd like. Click the link in the episode description to learn more. Thanks guys, now enjoy the show. The Sisterhood of the Bottomless Mimosa. Well, hello there, everybody out in podcast world. Welcome back to the show. This is Melissa, and you are listening to Mimosa Sisterhood Podcast, where we pop bottles and celebrate some of the world's greatest women. Today, we've got a very fun episode for all you music lovers out there in the world. Leah, the co-host of She Will Rock You Podcast, is joining me on the mic today, And you guessed it, we're going to be talking about some badass women that made a very huge impact on music history. Super excited about this. I am a huge music fan, but really, who isn't? But I'm more excited that I get to sit down and talk to another music fan, Leah. So we've got a really awesome, fun, and educational episode coming at you guys today. I am covering a much lesser known woman who definitely deserves to be highlighted and celebrated in terms of music history. And Leah's covering somebody a little bit more well known. You've definitely heard her songs. And I just love this cool blend of kick ass women that we have for today's show. So before we get into it, just a couple things I wanted to announce. Our podcast merchandise is going live on the website tomorrow. The day has finally come, people. It took me three years to finally pull the trigger and make some merchandise magic happen. I'm so excited about this. In fact, one of the main reasons why I updated my podcast cover art last summer, I think it was, was so that I could use that artwork for my future merchandise. I can't wait to see you guys rocking it on your own bad selves. We've got a couple different products that are launching that feature this artwork. So if you do end up purchasing one of these items, definitely post on social and tag me so I can see it existing in your own home and world. And I've got a lot of other really fun items in the shop that little old me designed myself. It's taken an eternity to get this together. I had to tap into my Y2K MySpace coding skills back when I was 13 years old and apparently a genius. And I'm just enamored by the fact that I somehow managed to build an e-commerce shop into my website and that I'll be having purchasable products living on it tomorrow. Like what has this world come to? I am so excited. So please be sure to head by my website www.mimosasisterhood.com. Take a look at some of the cool shit that we've got up in the shop and 
If you feel so inclined to purchase some Mimosa merch, by all means, have at it. And again, tag me on social. I'd love to see what you've got. And I'd love to see you rep the pod out in the real world. All right. Awesome. Those are the announcements for me. As usual, if you're not subscribed on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please be sure to do that so you can receive our brand new episodes direct to your phone the moment that they drop. And if you haven't yet, I would love if you left me a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I swear that your reviews make such a remarkable impact on the success of this podcast, as well as allowing us to find new listeners out there that currently don't know that we exist or the listeners out there that are literally relying on those positive reviews to determine if they're willing to press play on one of my episodes and give my podcast a shot. So help assist out. All right, let's not waste any more time. I'm ready to fucking rock and roll, baby. I hope you guys enjoy this episode and I'll see you on the other side. We're going to be doing a drum roll today because it's very on theme with the pod. Everybody say hello to Leah, the co-host of She Will Rock You podcast. Hi, Leah. Hello, everybody. Hello. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited. (laughs) I am so excited. I actually recently just had somebody asked in the Q&A episode, like, how do you find guests for your show? And I'm like... I literally just like say hello to people on the internet. (laughs) That's that's how you meet the best people. And then they're booked like that day. (laughs) So (laughs) that's kind of what happened with us. We were somehow chatting on Twitter and which Twitter is like the mecca of podcast networking. I feel like it's insane. And yeah, the Twitter world brought me to you. I checked out your podcast, which I absolutely love because I am a huge music fan. And um, now you're here on the show and I can't wait. So thanks. Yeah, I'm super excited to be here. Well, tell everybody about your podcast. So I co-host She Will Rock You. And the way I always describe it is we're two women having a rock podcast because we were tired of all the male hosted rock podcasts. Um, by guys who were like 20 years older than us. Um, We're unique because we did not live in the era that most of these artists were famous. So we have kind of a fresh perspective. Um, But we also tell the story of just other iconic female musicians. They don't necessarily have to be in like the rock box. And we also interview some newer acts as well. So it's kind of like a mixed bag. We keep things interesting. You never know what we're going to post next. I like love the interviews with real musicians today. Like that is so cool and like such an awesome way to just amplify and celebrate other musicians out there that a lot of people have maybe never heard of while also just paying tribute to all the legends who have made this industry what it is. I mean, so many freaking icons out there. We have told stories about so many female musicians on the podcast and I absolutely love music. I have been a fan since I was a kid. In addition to like my Britney Spears and Backstreet Boys in sync obsession, I was also listening to like 
Fleetwood Mac in the seventh grade and like REM and Journey grew up in like a huge music household. So I've been so stoked about your podcast because the only other music podcast that I was aware of was Disgraceland. Do you guys listen to that one? No, I haven't. I think I've listened to maybe one episode. I just couldn't get into it. Well, it's very like um, produced. Like it has a lot of that like narrating going on. And it's just very, it's not really like podcasty. I think of those kind of shows as more like audio booky. Yeah. Um, I found that the more like indie podcasters that I interact with, the less and less I like those really produced shows. Totally. Totally. Because they just don't feel as authentic anymore after. No listening to just two people talk. <laughs> totally. But yeah, I'm stoked on your guys' podcast. I've been listening to it like crazy since I've met you and I'm just loving it. So high Thank five you. to you and you. your co-host. Her name is Bethann, right? Yes. Yeah. Hi, Bethann. So yeah, just so excited about it. And I can't wait to talk about some awesome musicians today. Yes. But before we get into it, are you drinking tonight? Yes, I have a White Claw that I've saved specifically for tonight. I I went out on a boat with some friends on Saturday and I was packing my cooler and I was like, I have to leave at least one White Claw in the fridge for for Monday night. (laughs) What flavor are you drinking? Blackberry. One of the newer ones. Which, yeah. The pack that this one is in is like the best White Claw pack. Okay, that's what my last guest just told me. And I was like, I first of all, I didn't even know there was a new pack. Second of all, there's two new packs. There's two new packs? Yeah, I haven't tried the other one. This one has strawberry pineapple blackberry and mango the strawberry is the elite flavor of white claw but i drink really well i'm a huge white claw fan really any hard seltzer fan and i've drinking many a claw on the podcast <laughs> <laughs> so they are welcome every day what is this cool can you have it in is it like one of those insulated things yeah it's a yeti can oh, sleep. Nice. it's really hot in this room and so i was hoping it would maybe keep it a little cooler it's already yeah. really sweaty though so where where do you live? You're somewhere on the East Coast, right? Virginia. Oh, cool. Is it hot as balls out there right now or just hot in the house? It's 93 here today. Like, oh, it's really shit. hot. That is way hotter than where I'm at. I'm in El Segundo, California, and it's humid, but it's only like 68 out. That sounds so nice. It's really humid here and it's 93, so it's disgusting. Oh. Like, this morning I walked out of the gym and I was like, I feel like I'm, there's no point in showering because I'm already sweaty again. Yeah, I, that's not an enjoyable experience. Well, I am drinking something very snazzy today that I just picked up from the liquor store. I was feeling like a beer today and I always pick anything that catches my eyeball and this one really caught my eyeball and it got me thinking that this reminds me of like everybody at a music festival yeah. It's just so psychedelic. And that may or may not be acid on the tongue of this illustration. It probably is. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, it's a super psychedelic beer. It has like a sun with six eyes and this like crazy mouth with a tongue. And there's even like a star on one of the teeth, which is pretty oh, cool. I, yeah, I didn't even notice that. That's funny. <laughs> And then there's a heart on the tongue, which, like, just based off the whole illustration in general, I can only guess that that is an illegal drug. Probably. What's the name of the beer? It's Boomtown Brewery. And this is somewhere in Los Angeles. I've never heard of it. Don't know where this brewery is at. Somewhere in L.A. 
And it's a hazy double IPA, which I just learned this weekend. I love hazy IPAs. I went to a couple of breweries and had them and I was like, I'm a fan. 8.2 booze level. And really, I'm just obsessed with this artwork. So had to go for it. And it just made me feel like it's very on brand with our rock theme for tonight's episode. It is. It's very much so. (laughs) Yeah, I might be a little buzzed by the end of this, but... That's the point. <laughs> yeah. It's a good episode when you're when you're buzzed at the end. Oh, yeah. I'm a much better storyteller when I've had a drink. Me, too. It's been a while <laughs> since we've drank on our show just because of, like, timing of doing it on weeknights. And we, we had vodka this last recording. And it was just, like, a much funnier experience. <laughs> yeah. It's just, like, it helps people. It, it really does. <laughs> just, like, one drink, though. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We can, can get a little bit too crazy. Okay. Well, let's do this. I thought I would kick off today's show because I have a music legend that's more historical. Wait, so first, I thought it. You gotta yeah. tell me about running into Pink. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> I forgot I wanted to talk to you about this. Okay. I've been waiting like all day for this story <laughs> because it was just such an epic photo. Right? Okay, so I have like a great story. So I was in Mammoth, which is like a mountain town here in like Northern California area. And my boyfriend rides motocross and he was in this race competition all weekend. So we went up there. It's like a whole freaking event. It's like basically like tailgating at a football game, but it's dirt bikes instead of footballs. And it's literally like the first day and I'm sitting at our camp. So like it's like a camping kind of thing, but you're not sleeping overnight, but it's just like cars, pop-up tents, everybody's drinking, like it's a it's a whole event. And so we have like 40 people in our group and for whatever reason at this exact moment no one was at our campsite. Like people were just like off like running around doing whatever they were doing. And my boyfriend was sitting in his truck trying to just like rest because he's been up since 4 a.m. And so I'm just sitting alone on this chair and I'm drinking. It's probably like 11 a.m. Cracked my first drink at like 10. So I've had like one seltzer at this point. Sitting there by myself and this car like drives through, which already was strange because basically in order to have your car there, you had to show up at like 7 a.m. to like get a spot. And so now it was 11. So no cars were coming in. But this like car drove in. And they're parking, like, right in front of our camp. And the security, of course, comes running over. You can't park here. Like, going crazy. We're going to kick you out. And Pink opens up the door and walks out. And, like, I didn't, I didn't, like, in a moment, I was just like, wait, there's no way that's her. This must be another woman with short, bleached hair that just looks like Pink. I was like, there's no way in hell that's pink standing one foot away from me. And then the other doors opened up and her kids walked out. And I was like, oh, my God, that's pink. And I know what her kids look like because I'm a freak. (laughs) And like now I totally know that this is pink and her family and what the fuck. So I'm like just sitting there starstruck. And then once the security sees her, they're like, oh, Miss Pink, just <laughs> kidding. Um, you can park here, no big deal. Like it's all do good. whatever you want. It's fine. Yeah, and she's like, yeah, that's what I thought. Like I didn't show up here today to get an argument with security. So if you don't mind, like, adios. <laughs> like leave me the fuck alone. 
And for those people that don't know and are wondering, like, why the fuck is Pink at a motocross competition in Mammoth? Her husband's a professional motocross guy. So anyway, all of a sudden it clicked. I'm like, oh, my God, Pink's here because her husband's here. And what the fuck? We're all here in this motocross thing in Mammoth. Like, of all places in the world, I'm running into Pink in the middle of the woods. Yeah, not like like in L.A. (laughs) You're just... (laughs) At a campground. What are you talking about? So then I'm like thinking this whole time that she is like knows the people next door to us, which where her is where her car was. And so I'm thinking like, oh, my God, Pink's going to be like sitting in a chair next to me all day. Can't believe it. But she like goes into the race with her kids and I don't see her again. And like all day I'm like, where the fuck's Pink? And I like keep looking to see if she like came back to the tent area. She didn't. So I'm like, she's gone forever. I don't know where she went. And then literally like. 12 hours later, 7 o'clock at night, at this point, 10 hard seltzers deep. Like, like, it has been a day. And we're at, like, they do, like, basically the ceremony of whoever placed gets a trophy. And Carrie Hart is at the ceremonies because, of course, he placed. And so as we walk in, Pink's just hanging out in the freaking ceremony area, which there's only, like, 50 people there. And she's just standing there having cocktails and just like, like it's just a normal day, like nothing weird, nothing out of the norm. And I am literally having a heart attack. Like (laughs) I can't even breathe. I'm petrified. And I'm also tripping out because one, I'm obsessed with her. I covered her on the podcast. We have the same birthday. I made jokes in the podcast about how we're birthday soul sisters and we both date guys on dirt bikes <laughs> and I'm like we're basically best friends and so I'm just like just I don't know I'm, I've loved her my whole life since I was in like eighth grade and anyway I'm like I'm not gonna go disturb her I don't want to be one of those jerks that approaches a celebrity at their family event and then the celebrity hates me and tells me I'm an asshole you know because I like yeah, yeah, yeah. jumped in on her like children time so I'm like I'm not gonna do it I'm not gonna do it but then, like, randomly people would go up and, like, ask for a photo, and she was totally cool about it. Like, didn't care. I still refused, and then my boyfriend's cousin was like, fuck you, we're getting you this picture. You've been talking about her for 14 hours straight. We're sick and tired of it. You're getting your damn picture. And so I, like, walked over there all drunk and nervous and got my picture, and all I could say was, pink, you're my idol. Aww. <laughs> Yeah. It was the only words I could get out of my mouth. And she was like, cool. And we got our picture and then she was just gone. And I'm like, that was the craziest thing. But then I went back to my camp. I had my podcast stickers in my wallet because I take them with me smart, everywhere. Smart. I wrote a note on the back saying, Pink, this is my podcast. I covered you in episode seven. I love you. Like, check it out. And I Aww. put them under her windshield. Genius. But I don't know if she ever got them because I hope she, she hasn't did. called me yet to thank me and tell me how much she loved the episode. <laughs> but I yeah, that so it much. was crazy. Like the 12-year-old Melissa would was literally in my body in that moment having a panic attack. Yeah, I would have no chill meeting someone of that like celebrity status. I've, I've not met anyone that famous. I've met like much less famous people. Like, I met Drake Bell at a thing who that didn't age well at all. But, um, he's like <laughs> Maybe the first like last week it would have aged well. But. Yeah. He played a show randomly here in the middle of nowhere. But just like being in the same room as him because a very small show, I was like, I can't go talk to him. 
because you could right? afterwards. I was like, I can't. I can't. <laughs> yeah. I'm also just not one of those people that's like brash. Like, I just don't want to be a dick. Like, I don't want to. I don't like bothering I'm sorry people. to bother you with my existence, yeah. but I love you. <laughs> yeah. And so I felt super uncomfortable about it. But I'm now very grateful that my boyfriend's family forced me to do it because now I have that photo and it's an iconic photo. And also, like, three different pink fan pages reposted it. Nice. <laughs> which is hilarious. Like, these, like, random fan pages. I'm, like, on their their queue now. They're desperate for content because nothing is happening right now. <laughs> right? I know. But, yeah, it was crazy. It was nuts. And I'm just going to hope I see her at every event. <laughs> I mean, the <laughs> chances eternity. are high. I know. Oh, and the other fun fact is that at this motocross competition or whatever, they do it annually, she actually proposed to Carrie Hart at that same race, like, many years ago. That's adorable. Right? So I think she goes back to those because it's, like, a special, you know, milestone in their relationship. Yeah. And it's, like, iconic for them. I love that. Um, but, yeah, it was even weird because... The second day I didn't see her, but I was, like, standing at this award ceremony and Carrie Hart was right next to me. And I was like, maybe I should just, like, go talk to him (laughs) and try to weasel my way in through the husband. (laughs) But I didn't. (laughs) You still got it, though. That's all that matters. Yeah, totally. And maybe I'll DM Pink this week and be like, so did you get my stickers? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Shoot your shot. Right? Just I just got to keep doing it. So, yeah, so weird, so crazy. That's but incredible. The highlight of the weekend for sure. Maybe the whole year. The whole year, my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's my pink story. I, I love I that. I can't believe I forgot to even bring it up. So, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> for reminding me that I met pink <laughs> last weekend. Been thinking about it all weekend. Oh, gosh. Perfect. Thank you. Okay, well, on to other musicians let's dive in so i am covering somebody today that i actually never heard of before and she was recommended uh by a friend of mine who introduced me to her and was like oh if i ever came on the podcast i'd totally cover this person but i don't think she's coming on the podcast so i've just literally stolen it from her so sorry Uh, if you are (laughs) thanks michaela (laughs) um but i'm covering a woman whose name is Elizabeth Cotton. Last name is spelled C-O-T-T-E-N. And she's a folk music legend who's known for playing a right-handed guitar upside down. Um, Okay. (laughs) And uh, she's iconic because she is not well-known at all. I don't know who she is. But her music has been widely covered and like reproduced by some of the world's greatest musicians out there and we've heard her songs through the lens of famous musicians but no one knew that elizabeth cotton was behind the song that we've all heard from some of our other favorite bands so that's why i'm going to cover her today um she also goes by libba cotton but here is her story So, she was born in 1893 near Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and she was the youngest of five children born into a musical family. 
And at a very young age, she would borrow her brother's banjo, which she wasn't allowed to do. So she'd have to like sneak around the house and like steal it out of his room when he was out and about. And she eventually taught herself how to play the instrument. And so by eight years old, she was playing like full-blown songs on her brother's banjo. Then her brother like moved out. He was a lot older than her. He went on and like moved out. So the banjo was no longer in the residence and she couldn't play any instrument anymore. And so she knew, especially once it was removed from her arms and hands, she was like, holy shit, I need to get an instrument. Like I'm obsessed with this. Like I can't live without it. But she didn't have one. Her family was also very poor. So poor that at third grade, she had to drop out to Aww. go to school. To, or, I'm sorry, to go to work. Aww, so, so like young. eight years old, dropping out of school so that she could get a job to make money to give back to her family so that they could just survive. Aww. Really sad, really horrible. And so... She ended up going door to door trying to find work and she ended up landing a job as a house cleaner and she was making 75 cents a month. A month? A month. And then she eventually earned herself a 25 cent raise, which she decided to put towards saving for a guitar. Aw, baby. So she ended up saving up enough money and she went out and bought a Sears Roebuck Harmony Stella guitar for $3.75, which today would be about $108. Hey, if she's only saving 25 cents a month, that would have taken forever to save up for. <laughs> like a whole, at least a year. Mm-hmm. So... She then had a guitar and she had to now teach herself how to play guitar because she had only ever played the banjo before. And she started off by like laying the instrument flat on her lap and she'd just pick one string at a time. And then she eventually began to master all of the chords. But because she was left-handed and the guitar that she bought was Mm. crafted for a right-handed player, she turned the guitar upside down and she created her own signature style of music. And so she played the bass notes with her index finger and then the melody notes with her thumb, which later then became known as cotton picking, which Uh, is named after Elizabeth Cotton. Huh. I never knew that. Yes. So by 12 years old, she wrote her first song, which would end up becoming her most famous song and is still extremely famous today. And it's called Freight Train. And it was written about her hometown in North Carolina. She was lived by like train tracks. So all she could hear all day long was these train tracks. And the lyrics of the song include many adult themes, including death and depression, which is Really gnarly, considering she was only 12 when she wrote it. So it's obvious that she grew up very quickly and experienced quite a bit of like hardship yeah. to be able to talk about death and depression at 12 years old. Um, and then at age 14, she was able to perform a large number of rag and dance tunes that were all decorated with her distinct signature style. So they just were... They sounded exactly like Elizabeth Cotton music. And she would stay up late into the night playing her guitar. She didn't stop until her mother would wake her up and tell her to go to bed. So she was just in love. 
And then at 15 years old, she married a man named Frank Cotton. And although this seems really young, being 15 years old to get married, it was actually quite common for the time period. Mm -hmm. So they got married, but her husband's family was like insane religious and they strongly disapproved of her playing music. And the deacons of her new church that she's now attending after getting married, they also discouraged her from playing worldly, quote, worldly music, because for them, they said that that was, quote, for the devil. Of course it was. (laughs) All good music is for the devil. Yes, of course. And so at first, it was, like, really hard for her to give up guitar because she has been obsessed with it her entire life. But at the same time, like, she had this commitment to the church and she didn't want to let down her husband and her husband's new family and the church, which was, like, a massive community for them. So she agreed to put down the guitar and she didn't pick it up for almost 30 years. 30 years. (laughs) Yes. So, like, that basically tells you that this woman's musical career did not begin until way later in life yeah which she was ancient by 1930s standards for real (laughs) and i love stories like that because i feel like there's always so much pressure you know to like have the thing accomplish the thing yeah so young and these kinds of stories are really show that like actually it happens when it happens there's no time limit on success no so, yeah, basically, so we got 30 years to cover before we get into the, the meat and the potatoes. But <laughs> her and Frank give birth to a daughter named Lily. They then left North Carolina and ended up moving to Washington, D.C. So after getting married and having this family, she it was easier for her to stop playing music because she was so busy. She was like, I have to be a wifey. I have to be a mother. I have to clean the house. I got to do this and that. And so it kind of just like was on the back burner and she wasn't really like that upset about it anymore. But then when her daughter Lily grew up and got married, Elizabeth ended up divorcing her husband. I don't know why. I couldn't find any information on why. And also this is like the 1940s when she does this. So good for her. Really like out of the norm for her to divorce her husband in this time period. And also she was like in her mid 50s. So just not really normal which is interesting um and then she moved in with her daughter and her daughter's family and so then she spent the next several years of her life helping to raise her grandchildren and then she went on to raise her grandchildren's children jeez (laughs) yeah that's too many children i know um so like again she's old as shit now yeah (laughs) yeah so during this time she was also working still working as a house cleaner she basically was a house cleaner her entire life in fact like some people have coined her the nickname as being the musical maid but she actually ends up cleaning houses like her entire life even after she's successful so she's doing this still and she's also working at a department store during the holiday season selling dolls at like a kid's store and it's just like a what do they call them like a holiday only job i don't remember what the term of knowledge is about Yes, seasonal. And so at this point, she's like, believe like in her late 50s, almost 60 years old. And she's not with her husband anymore. And so she like decides to like pick up the guitar again. And she's just like playing casually at home. 
But her great-grandson was quoted to say, quote, I don't remember a single night she didn't play the guitar. I mean, sometimes I'd be too tired to go to school. She'd be playing till three or four in the morning. It was mesmerizing to me. Rather than putting me to sleep, it would keep me awake. Because he was just like, whoa, like, grandma, holy shit. (laughs) Oh, she's been keeping this my whole life. Yeah. So then one day something absolutely miraculous happened. Like a literal moment of fate that would change her life forever and also kickstart her musical career. So one day while she was working at this department store, she like came across like a lost kid, like running around, like crying, like, where's my mommy? And come to find out the kid that she found was a child named Peggy Seeger, who was the daughter of a woman named Ruth Crawford Seeger, who is considered to be one of the most significant female composers of the 20th century and is part of a massively famous folk music family. So Elizabeth had no clue who these people were, but she's like, I got to bring this kid back to her mom. And so when she returned Peggy back to her mom, Ruth was like super taken aback with just like how kind and gentle Elizabeth was with her daughter, just like taking care of her and like being a comfort to her. She's got a lot of experience with kids at this point. Yeah, right? (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) And so she was just like so impressed with this lady that she offered her a job to work in their house. Okay. Which I'm assuming she was working as like their uh, housekeeper slash nanny for the yeah. kids because uh, Ruth had three children. So after the holiday season ended, Elizabeth left her job at the department store and came to work in the Caesar residence, which just so happened to be littered with some of the world's most incredible instruments. <laughs> Casually. Like, covered from head to toe with just like the best instruments anybody had ever seen. And so, needless to say, the Seeger family household was an amazing place for Elizabeth to end up by complete pure accident, utter fate. And in addition to just Ruth being a famous musician, her husband, Charles Seeger, who's I think more well known in the folk world, was also heavily tied to the music industry. And he is basically one of the people that like founded the field of ethnomusicology, Mm. which is the study of music of the world. Mm -hmm. So he was like a professor, a teacher, and he had all these like philosophical thoughts around music and like coined this new area of study, basically. And all three of their kids ended up becoming like famous musicians as well. So it's their kids were Pete, Mike and Peggy. Pete ended up being the most famous, Pete Seeger. He's a massive folk musician that got a lot of fame um, with some of his folk music around, like, advocacy. So their whole family ended up just being, like, massive in this folk world. And for Elizabeth, somebody who was a prodigy in guitar and banjo, this couldn't have panned out better for her. She hit the gold mine with yes, the family she that really, she's manning for. She, yes, she did. And so keep in mind, I think she's in her late 50s, about to be 60. And so she's working at the Seeger's house. And while she's there, she inherits this nickname, Libba, 
which I'm going to actually start calling her from now on. And it was a name that the youngest daughter, Peggy, gave to her. She just started calling her Libba instead of Elizabeth. And that name has carried on throughout the rest of her entire life and career and is what most people ended up calling her um, until the end of her life. So Libba's her new name. And a few years into working at the Seeger's house, Peggy, the youngest daughter, ended up like finding Libba secretly playing the family's gut string guitar in the pantry. Like caught her in there like playing guitar, like shredding actually. (laughs) And so Peggy comes upon her and is like, what the hell? And Libba like apologizes like, oh my God, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I am playing your guys' instruments and I didn't even ask like, please don't fire me, you know? And Peggy's like, are you kidding me? Like, I can't even believe what I just heard. Like, what the hell is going on? Are you kidding? And so the Seegers end up in complete shock and disbelief that their housekeeper is a literal prodigy in the musical world. And they're just like, what the fuck is going on? And they are blown away and just take this like, huge interest in helping develop her career because they're like we found like the next greatest thing and she happens to be like cleaning our sheets yeah like how did this happen (laughs) again like fate and she's really old so you guys are probably not expecting this right just i don't know i'm that's what i'm saying like the fact that they combine at one point in life and just fireworks explode it's just so cool So the younger brother, Mike, he ends up working with Libba and they make bedroom reel-to-reel recordings of her songs. And then soon after this, she's already out doing small concerts in the homes of congressmen and senators, including John F. Kennedy. And then by 1958, at the raw age of 62, Libba records her first album, which was originally called Elizabeth Cotton Negro Folk Songs and Tunes, but it was later reissued to be called Freight Train and Other North Carolina Folk Songs. And so this album became one of the few authentic folk music albums available in the early 1960s and was by far the most influential. And then Peggy, the young daughter, ends up growing up and she like moves to London or something. And she like takes with her uh, Libba's album because she's obsessed with it. And so she's like out at some like local coffee shops doing whatever musicians do in London. And she's like playing... Libba's album out there and Freight Train, the most popular song Libba has, is like bumping and people are hearing it and they're loving it. Everybody's digging the catchy tune and the lyrics and the song like spreads like wildfire. And it was picked up by numerous UK based musicians who basically like ripped off the song and claimed it was theirs. That sounds <laughs> so about they, like, right. Stole her music. Her most popular song that has ever existed hit the UK and they're like, oh, we're taking this. And, like, it got so out of control that literally one day Libba and the Seeger family are, like, at the house watching TV together. There's this show called The Ed Sullivan Show. And they literally witness. Oh, no. um, (laughs) They literally witness a folk singer named Nancy Whiskey perform Freight Train live on television as if it were her own. And Libba's just like, uh that's my song (laughs) like what the fuck is going on here so 
with the help of the Seeger family, who are famous now at this point in the United States in this folk world, they they partner with Libba and they end up suing like multiple people, not just this lady, like several different people for copyright infringement. And they eventually settle out of court in 1957. But according to Libba's grandson, she only ended up receiving a fraction of the royalties that were made off of that song. So that sucks. But she's it kind of gets better later. So her music just is blowing up and it's blowing up and it's blowing up. And she becomes this huge staple for folk revival. She begins to tour throughout North America and she's playing a bunch of concerts, especially with the youngest son, Mike Seeger, who's like out there doing his thing. So I just love that, too, that like they're just like on tour with her and she's like opening for their sets and stuff. It's just adorable. (laughs) She's just like this old granny, like black woman who was their maid and now she's opening their shows. It's just crazy. So she went on to perform at the Newport Folk Festival, the Philadelphia Folk Festival, the University of Chicago Folk Festival, and the Smithsonian Festival. She was super confident on stage. Mike Seeger actually, like, made a note. I watched, like, a documentary, and he was telling this story that she would go up on stage, and before she'd start performing, she'd just, like, remind the audience that, like, oh, by the way, I'm self-made. Um, I taught myself how to do this at, like, eight years old. Um, <laughs> like, no one got me here. Like, I, you know, I mean, the Seekers helped out, but, like, as far as her talent's concerned, yeah. she'd never had any training or anything throughout her entire life. It's crazy. And so she was very proud of that about herself, as she should be. And the crowds loved her. And this, like, newfound interest in her music inspired her to write more songs. And then in 1967, she released a record that she created with her grandkids, which is absolutely adorable. And the album's called Shake Sugary, which is also the name of, like, the number one song on the album. And then with the profits from all of her tours and her concerts, she was able to move her daughter and all the grandchildren out of Washington, D.C. to Syracuse, New York, where she was able to buy like this big house for everybody. So nice. And her career generated tons of media attention and tons of awards. Probably one of the best awards she got was the National Folk 1972 Burl Ives Award for her contribution to American folk music. And she continued to tour and release records well into her 80s. Wow. Which is the same time she decided to go back to school and finish her GED. That's so cute. At 80, she went back to school to finish her GED. Because remember, she dropped out of school in third grade. Hey, she got there eventually. (laughs) 80 years old. And then in 1984, at 90 years old, 90 years old, she won a Grammy for Best Ethnic or Traditional Recording. And that was for her live album, which was called Elizabeth Cotton Live. And her last concert ever was one that folk legend Odetta put together for her in New York City in the spring of 1987, shortly before her death. And then a few months later, after this concert, she did end up dying. Obviously, she's in her 90s, June 1987. Um, I actually don't know how she passed away. I couldn't find, I think she's probably just old age. There wasn't anything like crazy yeah. that happened. Uh, she was 94 years old when she passed away. 
And a few years after her death in 1989, she was featured in a photo documentary called I Dream a World that listed her as one of the 75 most influential African-American women, where she's featured alongside Rosa Parks and Oprah Winfrey. Wow. Yeah, so cool. And in addition, uh, the city of Syracuse, New York, where she lived when she ended up passing away, honored her by naming a small park in her honor, the Elizabeth Cotton Grove. And there's a really cool statue of her there. Um, But the coolest thing, I think, is that obviously Elizabeth Cotton's legacy lives on in her recordings, her musical talent, her signature style, the fact that she taught herself all of this coming from a very underprivileged upbringing of, you know, poverty and working as a house cleaner her entire life with not a lot of education or any opportunities. I mean, all of that is in just r- miraculous. But also her legacy lives on in the ridiculous amount of artists who continue to play her music today. And the most famous of which, Freight Train, the song that she wrote when she was 12 years old. Yeah, that's the craziest part. Is the same song that some of the most popular musicians of all time cover. (laughs) That's crazy that she wrote it at 12. Yes. And so there was a list of so many people, many I don't know because I'm not super familiar with folk music. So I could have list like 75 people and either you knew all of them or none. But I was like, I'm just going to name the people I have heard of. That's probably easier. (laughs) Yeah. And so just a couple people to name who have covered, if not several of her songs, but specifically Freight Train, Jerry Garcia from The Grateful Dead, Bob Dylan, Peter, Paul, and Mary, Taj Mahal, and one of the best performances, in my opinion, that I just watched earlier today on YouTube was performed by Gary Clark Jr., which is my boyfriend's, one of his favorite artists, so if you're listening, YouTube it now. (laughs) You're going to really like it. (laughs) But in addition, The Grateful Dead produced several versions of her song, Oh Babe, It Ain't No Lie, and Bob Dylan covered her song, Shake Sugary. Which the Grateful Dead also has a song called Sugary with lyrics that are shake it, shake it, sugary. And the song is called Shake Sugary. And yet I couldn't find any ties. There's a tie there. There has to be a tie there. (laughs) They just didn't want to credit anybody. No. And the Grateful Dead song came out like 10 years after uh, Elizabeth Cotton's song was released. So I thought it was very eerie that they couldn't at least admit that there was some kind of influence there. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, basically that their song was inspired off of her song, Shake Sugary. Um, But I mean, in it like Libba's recordings, her concert tours, her media acclaim and major awards are a testament of her genius. But the true measure of her legacy lies in the tens of thousands of guitarists who cherish her songs and continue to keep them alive. And it's unbelievable because when I was going through YouTube, just like looking to see like covers of her song, it's like literally the most recent one was like a couple months ago. And I'm like, whoa, you know? And so it's just wild to me because, I mean, obviously just who she is and just her entire life story and like what that amounted to in terms of her success and her talent just remarkable 
And also just remarkable to think that she's somebody, at least for me, I've never heard of her. And she was a massive inspiration to Mm -hmm. so many artists out there. And it's it always kind of like creeps me out to think that like sometimes we like sing these songs of our favorite bands and like we have no clue like where that originated from, the story behind where that originated from, the eight year old girl that had to drop out of school to clean houses for 75 cents a month. It's like it's nuts to me that our and it's no one's to blame really other than just society in general. It's Mm -hmm. like no one's fault for not knowing that if it if they were never you know, able to just discover that information on, like, a podcast like mine. (laughs) But, I mean, it just, like, I just love being able to tell everybody about her so that if they have ever heard these songs before or heard the Grateful Dead perform them or Bob Dylan, at least now they can be like, wow, that's cool. Like, next time I hear that again, I it's going to mean so much more to me and uh, be a lot more powerful than prior. So, yeah. That is Elizabeth Libba Cotton, and it's C-O-T-T-E-N, in case anybody's wondering. So you can go Google it later. Yeah. Oh, and also, I wanted to make this note. If you do Google her with Freight Train, you're probably going to find a video of her at, like, 85 singing it, and it is rough. (laughs) Oh. It is rough. So don't take that... (laughs) Don't take that as the legend itself. That's a very old lady doing her best to sing one of her older songs. Um, But there are other versions of it when she was much younger singing it that you should look for, not the one where she's 85 and um, very old (laughs) trying to sing her most popular song. Good to know. Yeah. So that's Elizabeth Cotton. She is a huge historic figure in the folk music scene. She inspired many other famous musicians who we all know and love. And I don't think many people know of her or give her credit. So we're given credit where credit's due. I love it. Yeah. So cool. Crazy, crazy, crazy. All right. Well, who do you have today? I have Debbie Harry of Blondie. Woohoo! Which is a not as wild of a story as you would think, but still a good story. Well, first off, I wanted to do Dolly Parton or Selena, both of which you've done already. So I was like, <laughs> yep. okay, back to the drawing board. But Debbie, Debbie has a great story as well. So Debbie Harry was born Angela Trimble on July 1st, 1945 in Miami, Florida. Uh, her mother and father were high school sweethearts. They got torn apart when they graduated. They found each other again. Um, but her mom accidentally got pregnant and found out that dad had a whole other wife and kids at home. Oh. So he put they put the baby up for adoption. And so at the age of three months, little baby uh, Angie was adopted by Richard Harry and Catherine Harry, who owned a gift shop in Hawthorne, New Jersey. And so they moved her up to New Jersey, and they renamed her Deborah Ann Harry. And she found out that she was adopted at four years old, which is shocking, I think, probably to a four-year-old. And she she always says that it gave her, like, a sense of searching for something out there. Like, there was a bigger purpose to her life, and she felt like a calling from something. Um, and she eventually 
in the late 80s, like once she'd gotten kind of famous, she was able to locate her birth mother. Her birth mother's a concert pianist, so music obviously runs in her blood. But her mom didn't want a relationship with her, and so she just kind of oh. like shut her out, which is really sad. That's horrible. As a kid growing up in New Jersey, she was very much a tomboy. She would spend pretty much all day, every day, playing in the woods by her home, which, same. Um, She started exploring music as a kid in her church choir, but never, like, never set out to make it a a career. She wanted to be just an artist. Like, she liked doing art with her hands and painting and that kind of thing. Um, And she was kind of rebellious, at the age of 13, she started bleaching her own hair, which I can't Wait, imagine. what age? 13. 13. Oh, I, I used to do that. <laughs> I could not have done it at 13. It would have been so bad. I bleached my friend's hair at 13 without having any knowledge of how to bleach hair. And I started at the roots, which is the number one rule of which you cannot do. Yeah. And it was not a it wasn't good. It was not good. I can imagine. <laughs> it was damaged, and then she had to go back. Her dad got so pissed, drove us to Walgreens. She had to buy, like, a black dye oh. and cover it up because her whole head turned orange. Oh, yeah. And it was, like, stretchy. Yeah, that's that's not good. <laughs> I hope her hair recovered. <laughs> it did eventually, years later. <laughs> Um, and she also started making her own clothes, like, from scraps and just clothes that her parents bought her. She had a very uh, distinct style. Also around the age of 13, when she started dyeing her hair blonde, she started having run-ins with older men catcalling her and flashing her. Wow. And great. so she was exposed to that world at a very young age. Um, and by her teenage years in high school, she was very much known as, like, the sexual one in high school, which she had no problem with. She's like, I loved experimenting. I had a boyfriend. We didn't keep anything like secret, but she lived in such a small town and everyone knew her business and everyone judged her for it that she was like, I have got to get out of this town. I'm not living in middle of nowhere, New Jersey for the rest of my life. So she graduates high school in 1963 and she moves to New York City for a little while. She wants to kind of, like, learn the scene and see what's happening. She does some some auditions. She waitresses. Things don't really work out that time in in New York. She ends up having to move back home where she gets into, like, a really abusive relationship with this man. I don't know his name. He's not important. No, we don't need to know his name. Um, (laughs) But one night he broke into her apartment and just, like, was hallucinating that there was another man there. And put a gun to her head. And so she was like, that's it. I have to get out of here. I have to break up with him. And so she just leaves and goes to college in uh, another town in New Jersey where she gets an arts degree, like painting and stuff. She's still not doing music. So she's like 21, 22 at this time. Um, So once she gets her degree, she moves back to New York City to become an artist as everyone in New York City in the 60s was trying to do. Mm -hmm. And so she does, like, random jobs while she's playing with music, she's playing with art, she's trying to, like, find herself in the city. Um, She works, like I said, random jobs. She works in the BBC radio office for, like, a year. She works as a waitress, as a go-go dancer, and as a Playboy bunny. Nice! Very New York in the 70s. Very. 
but she loved doing these experimental jobs because she met a lot of people from a lot of different places and they all felt like outsiders like she had felt her entire life and so she felt Mm -hmm. like she'd found her tribe and like it wasn't even the punk scene yet it was just a bunch of random people in new york city yeah just dancing around and doing weird shit and just probably like happy as a clam to even be there yeah they're all just vibing (laughs) uh so in the late 60s she joins a band called the wind in the willows which is a folk rock band uh they are not very good and she admits that they were not very good, but she's like, they were there and they needed a backup singer and it gave me the experience I needed. So, you know, it was fine. Um, but she didn't really feel like she stood out in this group because there were eight total backup singers in this band. So you're not going to make much of an impression. No. <laughs> <laughs> she got kind of tired of melting into the background. Um, now, the music scene in New York at the time is like popping. I heard, I listened to an interview where she told a story of she just wandered into a bar one night and the Velvet Underground was playing and Andy Warhol was working lights. Like, that was just a normal Tuesday night in New York City in this time period. And so she wanders into a bar, she sees the New York Dolls perform, and she was like, that's what I want to do. I want to be the New York Dolls. And so she joins a band called the Stilettos with a girl named... two women named Elda Gentile and Amanda Jones, and they added, they needed a guitarist, so they added Chris Stein, who very quickly became her boyfriend, and they would date for, like, the next 20 years. Um, Whoa. I feel like that's really surprising. Yeah, they had a pretty stable relationship until, like, the late 80s, so good for them. And so that band doesn't really work out. It lasts, like, a hot second, and so, uh, Debbie and Chris leave and form a band called the Angel and the Snake, which is a dumb name. <laughs> they realized it was a dumb name. Um, fun fact, one of their bandmates, Snooky Belomo, went on to found Manic Panic Hair Dye. A lot of hair dye in this story. <laughs> so that the stilettos didn't, or not stilettos, the Angel and the Snake didn't quite work out in that format. They shuffled some things around and they made Blondie which the name Blondie came about. Um, For a while, Debbie went back to her natural brown hair, but she's working at a salon at the time, and it was like a slow day, and some of her fellow hairdressers were like, we're bored, can we dye your hair blonde? And so they were walking together as a band, and they got catcalled by some guys saying, hey, Blondie, why don't you come over here? And she was like, you know what, if people are going to call me that anyway, that's our band name. And so it stuck. 20 bucks that guy came back years later asking for his money for the creation of the song, the band title. <laughs> Probably. That sounds like something a guy who's catcalling would do. Right? I know. <laughs> He's like, where's my cut? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so they, they became really popular really, really fast at a bunch of the, like, the punk bars in New York City. They played in the New York uh, Bowery scene. They became really popular at CBGB, which is where a lot of these punk new wave bands at the time got their start. And they kind of, this is hilarious to me because this is like 1975. They were known as the retro 60s sounding band, which to me, I feel like 15 years prior is not that retro. That's like a band now playing like 2005 music. They were called retro 60s? Yes. 
Huh. But it worked. Um, they said that they aimed to make rock and roll that people could dance to again. Because at the time, everyone was kind of like standing on the mm-hmm. walls and they didn't like that. They wanted mm-hmm. the crowd to be energetic and having fun. And so that was their mission. Their songs are super catchy. And right from the start, like when Chris and Debbie first met, Debbie's always known how to like command a crowd and have the attention all on her. And once she went blonde again, she started to model her look and her stage persona after Marilyn Marilyn Monroe, but with a more like punk androgynous edge to it. Mm -hmm. She would actually, I mean, they were broke because they were living in New York City in the 70s. So most of her clothes came from thrift stores that she would like customize and piece them together. And there's a really famous photo of her wearing this like zebra print mini dress. And it's actually a pillowcase she found in a dumpster and fashioned into a mini dress yeah that's amazing she was doing fashion on a budget like yeah a free budget i hope she she at least washed it but i I really either way (laughs) pretty cool and it worked out great for the band because she was very thrifty with making clothes and outfits and chris was a like pretty much a professional photographer at this point so he would take these amazing pictures of debbie send them to these like independent zines some of them like specialized in punk music and got them some publicity like pretty much for free because they didn't have to hire anybody but the whole time they're doing this they're just kind of doing it for fun like they never planned on being a band for more than like a year or two but the universe had other plans because in 1976 they start working on their debut album and they released their first single which they called x offender they want it to be called Sex Offender, but the label was like, no one is going to play that on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> sex Offender. <laughs> so they had to, they just cut a letter. Now it's X Offender. It's fine. And throughout the whole career, it starts pretty much from the beginning. The band is Blondie, but the label wants to push Debbie and not the rest of the band because they, she's pretty, she's blonde, they know that it'll sell. And so when they go to release the single, they, like, approved a promo shot of the whole band. And then they start seeing these posters around the city that's just Debbie, like, all posed up against a wall in a see-through shirt that she did not approve. And she's like, I wasn't mad about it because, like, I know sex sells, but I want to be on my terms and not, like, some record executive calling the shots. So this is kind of like an ongoing battle between her and her record label pretty much forever, Unfortunately, it was the 70s, so she didn't really get very far. I think if mm-hmm. she had been famous now, it would have been a lot different conversation. But We think. We hope. Maybe not. We hope. there are <laughs> The lawyers may be a little bit better now. Yeah. And so also at the time, she's hanging out with Iggy Pop and David Bowie just super casually. They're like her best friends. And they're all just like trading secrets on how to command a crowd and work a room. And it's just... The coolest time to be starting a band in history in New York City in the 70s. So they release their album Plastic Letters in 1978. And they very quickly became huge in the the punk scene. I won't say that they're like super famous yet. um, But they do get big enough to where in 1979, they're featured on the cover of Rolling Stone. But because they do this, everyone thinks that Debbie's name is Blondie. So she actually gets into this 
phase of her life where she can't tell where she ends and Blondie begins and it causes like kind of like a a Miley Hannah situation where she's like I don't know how to turn Blondie off anymore Uh, and the media definitely didn't help so they end up running a campaign where they would pass out buttons that said Blondie is a group (laughs) to their fans (laughs) props for the creative marketing I know I like that Uh, So they're famous, but it's not until their third album, Parallel Lines, probably their most known album, which releases in 1978, that they become a worldwide hit. Uh, This is the album that includes Heart of Glass. And it's interesting that your artist wasn't famous until later in life, because at this point, when they hit it big, Debbie's 31. Oh, really? Which is, like, really old for 80s pop star standards. Totally. Because she spent all her time, like, straight out of college, just trying to figure out what she wanted to do yeah that gives me hope yeah me too i'm like you know i'm only 28 there's still time for me to be super famous right i am 31 so right around maybe next year yeah there's still will be time. my year hopefully there's... it won't be 62 no <laughs> like a lippy cotton but you, you, you know, know what even if it is i'll be very grateful better late than never right uh, so, like I mentioned, she was really good friends with Andy Warhol. Like, they're floating with the same scene. Um, he was actually, I don't want to say fascinated with her, but he did a lot of works that featured her. Mm-hmm. He did one of his famous, like, pop art, the four um, colorful silk screens in different colors. He took a ton of Polaroids of her. Um, there's, like, the negatives of them were in a, uh, a Warhol museum i can't think of the word exhibition Mm -hmm. um but what's really cool about their relationship is chris is also a photographer and they're dating at the time so chris has all these cool like behind the scenes photos of andy warhol taking photos of debbie harry so cool like enough content to where in 2013 he had chris had his own exhibit at a museum in london of like andy warhol behind the scenes so super cool super cool to document like that very niche scene in new york at the time uh she was actually his first andy warhol's first guest on his mtv show which is just funny because the episode title is called sex vegetables brothers and sisters what i have no idea what it was about but i didn't even know he had an mtv show i don't think it lasted very long it's it sounds super weird and not like something that mtv would have been able to air at the time so i'm gonna have to look into this later (laughs) but debbie loved andy warhol and i like this quote that she said i think the best thing about is about him is that andy taught me to always be open to new things new music new style new bands new technology and just go with it never get mired in the past and always accept new things whatever age you are uh and around Around the time that all this is happening, in, in I think it's early 1980, Blondie's asked to record the theme song for a movie called American Gigolo, which they kind of just did one-off just because they were pretty popular. They wanted to be in more places, and it ends up being the best-selling single of their entire career, which I think is interesting because it's not on any of their albums. It's just like a soundtrack song. They also release a new album this year called Auto American, which is just not- notable because their song Rapture ends up being the first ever rap video to air on MTV. Oh, no way! Yeah. 
The first, okay, the first ever. Yeah, the first ever. Oh, that's ever. so interesting. It's got a few, like, smaller rap sections. It's not, like, a full-on rap production, yeah. but it's only 1980 at the time, so. Yeah. We're easing into it. Uh, so, the band decides to take a break for a little while, um, so Debbie Harry does some solo work, and she makes her solo album. It's called Cuckoo, K-O-O-K-O-O. And it's really interesting. The album art is so controversial at the time that many stores like won't even stock it. She hired this, uh, the guy who does the makeup for the movie Alien. She hired him to do the, the makeup for her album art. And it basically, she has these like six inch metal rods pierced through this fake skin on her face. And the record stores oh were like, it's just no. like scary looking yeah it's really scary looking it's actually kind of <laughs> uncomfortable <laughs> what what made her want to do that it, the the music on her album is a complete like 180 from blondie's sound she experimented with like uh sci-fi sounds and mm-hmm. it was just way different so she wanted something like edgy to distinguish like herself yeah from blondie she's <laughs> yeah. she's tired of being called blondie so she's yeah. like well, this is the debbie harry album it's different it you should look up the album art it's what it's was the album sh- called again cuckoo k-o-o-k-o-o oh, yeah. oh yeah yeah you can see why they didn't want to stock it you know what if she just had, I mean, the headband I'm liking, mm-hmm. it's these, like, nails mm-hmm. through her face that I'm not really liking. <laughs> that is the problem. Oh, that's, it's like, I was actually expecting it to be, like, worse. Like, gorier. I don't know what I was expecting it to be, like, gorier. It's actually, like, very, like, sh- elegant, chic, because it's, like, black and white or something. Yeah. But, yeah, I'm not into, like, these, like, seven-foot-long nails through her cheeks. No. <laughs> no. Oh, creepy. I don't like it. Mm-mm. So, they take that uh, year break to let her do that. Um, they end up coming back together. They do their sixth studio album called The Hunter. And they're just not hitting like they were before. They're not selling out tours. They ended up cutting the tour short because they just didn't sell enough tickets to sustain it. And they start to notice that Chris Stein is not doing so hot. He's losing a lot of weight. They think maybe he has cancer. Maybe he has AIDS. Like, he is sick, sick. Uh, They're still dating at this time, Chris and Debbie. And so he goes through all these tests. Turns out he has a super rare autoimmune disease called pemphigus, which causes blistering all over your skin, including the skin lining your throat. So, like, he couldn't eat. Oh, gosh. It was, like, painful to swallow? Yeah. Oh, God. Like, even, even liquid diets. Um, so the band splits up. Uh, Debbie's taking care of Chris because they're, they're still together. She loves... She loves him. She's trying to support him. Um, but she's she's still trying to do some solo stuff, but it's really hard to balance, like, your crumbling band, your almost dying boyfriend, and your solo career. Yeah. But eventually he does get stable. He's still okay. He's still alive, thanks to, you know, medicine advances. She ends up recording a second solo album called Rockbird. This one's not as controversial as the first one. <laughs> 
and it actually has a somewhat successful single called French Kissing. And she and she records a third solo album, which I just love the title. It's called Deaf, Dumb, and Blonde. <laughs> nice. Nice. And she kind of finds her vibe on that one with dance music, which is kind of returning back to her roots of wanting people to dance. She also, throughout her career, has dabbled in acting a little bit. She actually played Velma Von Tussle in the original Hairspray mu- movie, the one that's mm-hmm. not a musical for some reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know why it's not a musical. That was a mistake. And for the next 10 years, she just kind of does her solo thing. She and Chris are still together. They break up in 1989, but they're still on really good terms. They're still, like, best friends. She's the godmother of his two daughters. Oh, she never has had a like she never settled down and have a family of her own. So she's like, those are my daughters. They're, yeah. they're actually her goddaughters. Blondie did reunite in 1999 for a another album called No Exit. In 2006, they were inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And throughout all this kind of like, I don't want to call it downtime because they were still doing things. They weren't like they were back in the 80s. Um, but Debbie's taken on philanthropy as, like, her big passion in life. She was really inspired after watching Elton John and the work that he's Mm -hmm. done for HIV and AIDS, um, and she's like, I have the privilege of being able to get involved, and so I do, and so her two charities that she's done a lot of work for is Fighting Cancer and Endometriosis. Oh, so cool. And she's still, she's still touring, so kind of. That got halted, obviously, because of the pandemic. Yeah. Um, There's a Blondie comic book that I keep getting ads for, like, every day on Facebook. No way. (laughs) For some reason. You Google Blondie once. Comic books. Those need to come back. I've noticed a lot of artists, I say a lot, it's probably like three that I follow, which is a lot, um, are doing comic books. Really? Yeah. That's, I feel like it's one of those, like, nostalgic things that would really boom if it came back. I think so, too. It's it's like, such, like, a physical, collectible piece. It's not, like, a music piece. Uh-huh. But I think fans would l- love it. I just started playing Spotify out of my ear. <laughs> Whoops. So that's Blondie. There's, they're not, like, they weren't the biggest band of the 80s, but they were pretty revolutionary. Yeah. In Debbie's, like, sense of fashion and just their sound. How old is she today? I'm going to Google that because I should know. She's 75. Oh, 75. And she's still, like, doing, like, random tours when it's not a global pandemic? Yeah. They're supposed to play a festival, um, according to this tweet, in uh, May 2022. You know, it was funny. Her... The beginning of her story reminds me a lot, like, a little bit of Stevie Nicks, where, like, pretty sure, like, Stevie Nicks was at, like, San Jose College and, like, got a degree in English or something like that and, like, did the whole thing before she ever even started her, like, any kind of band. Which, like, I think that's so interesting because you don't think of these kind of musicians as just, like, people that did the regular status quo, you know, and then found it a little bit later. You think of people like, oh, they were young kids and they're in high school and then they, you know, fuck the man and, like, we don't have real jobs. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Just assume that's how it is. There's a lot Um, more pressure now, I think, to, like, 
make it by 21 or so and if you haven't made it by then then what's the point yeah that's i like though hearing about different you know whether musicians actors whatever but people that like lived the kind of like norm of life and then were like okay i'm gonna explore the things that i love the passions that i love they never like intended to blow up they were just doing it to experiment and yeah it just caught on so cool i honestly didn't know anything about her life at all know who she is know the band know nothing about her (laughs) she has a book which i bought but did not have time to read oh so cool um where she tells it's not it's not as much about her music as like just like random road stories from her life yeah um I didn't put it in there, but she's convinced that she was almost abducted by Ted Bundy at one point. <gasps> but the facts don't really line up, so that's why I didn't I didn't put it as part of the story. Yeah. Because he wasn't in New York at the time and during the panic of Ted Bundy like being captured and whatnot, there were a lot of false reports of women who were like, Definitely. I got in a car with a mysterious man who looked like him. It had to be him. And it's it's pretty much proven that it probably wasn't ted bunny because he's in florida at the time that she claims he was in new york city but like crazy stories like that in the book (laughs) well also like everybody was hitchhiking back then so it would be easy to be like oh i hitchhiked with ted bundy or something that was a terrible (gasps) idea why did they do that i don't know it was so common like and today we can't even like let our kids be in the front yard, you know. I won't even take an Uber by myself because I'm convinced I'm gonna get murdered. So <laughs> no. Also, I just wanted to tell you when I was looking up that album cover of the nails, like the fourth photo down. I don't know if you saw it, but it's like this dude and he has his arm up and it's the tattoo of the album like above his armpit. Oh, no, ew! <laughs> it's her big bald head it's the full entire art he got it tattooed on his arm above his armpit i'm like looking at it right now i'm just like first off that's a weird album art to get tattooed (laughs) but also that placement makes no sense well it's like anytime he's like waves hello (laughs) there's her face (laughs) that is so creepy i just can't i can't i'm just staring at it i need to get it get rid of it Super cool. I'm so happy I learned so much about her. I now want to just, like, continue drinking these beers and blast Blondie music in the house. Yes. Go listen to Blondie. Also listen to Miley Cyrus's cover of Heart of Glass because it's fantastic. I love Miley over here. I'm obsessed with her. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. That was so great. Yes, thanks We covered such awesome women. I love that, like... It's kind of funny because Elizabeth Cotton was like this whole generation before Debbie came into the mix. And but at one point they like intersect like in 1989, Elizabeth Cotton's like near in the end. And Debbie's just getting started. (laughs) Yeah, right. So cool. Also, just to like end on a quick note about your podcast, like how often do you guys produce episodes? Like, are you on all the platforms? Like, how can people, like, stay in touch? You have a website. Don't you guys have a cool website? Yeah, we have a website that I, I built <laughs> myself. Love it. Um, so we – our format is we do our – we call them our main episodes every other week. So that's, like, one of us sits down and tells the whole story of an artist. Um, but then we, we try to fill in those bi weeks with either artist interviews or bonus content. Uh, we have – an episode coming out this week we did a crossover with another podcast called muses on 90s grunge girls nice um so we we have some 
really awesome content planned for those in between weeks for the next like two months so come check us out you can find us if you go to shewillrockyou.com our socials are linked in the footers you can find all of our show notes um anything you need to know about our show you can find on the website so links to all of our feeds on all of the platforms if you can listen to a podcast there you can probably listen to our show there well cool thank you so much and um yeah everybody else get your rock on we've there's just so much good stuff out there you guys have so many great episodes keep it up good job you guys are awesome and thanks for coming on mimosa sisterhood today i so appreciate it this is so much fun thank you guys so much for listening i hope you enjoyed that awesome episode And I hope you guys know that I think each and every one of you is a motherfucking rock star. Seriously, though, I love you guys so much. And uh, I'd love for you to be a part of this community more than just a listener. We have a podcast hotline. And I think it would be absolutely rad if you called in and left a voicemail that I could then feature in one of my future episodes. If there's a woman in your life that deserves a special shout out, call the podcast hotline, tell me all about her, shout her name out, and let's all toast to her together on Mimosa Sisterhood Podcast. Or you can just call in, tell me your name, where you're calling from, how you found this podcast, maybe one of your favorite episodes, and just say hi. I really, really want to get to know each and every one of you, and I want you to be a part of this show with me. The phone number is 562-270-4914. That's 562-270-4914. And uh, call me maybe. Okay? All right. Goodbye. Love you. See you next time.